When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the world of the unusual, the bizarre, and occasionally the macabre. You're listening to Beyond Reality Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. And as you probably know by now, not J.V. Johnson with you. J.V. has the night off. Uh, My name, Bruce Markison. Glad to be with you on this uh, Thanksgiving Eve. And we've got two hours of hopefully very entertaining radio coming your way over the next couple of hours. We'll tell you about our featured guest in a moment But as we always like to get started, let's run down some of the fundamentals for our show. Uh, We have a terrific website. You can follow us at the website. It's beyondrealityradio.com, beyondrealityradio.com. And among the many features there, we've got a complete archive of past shows. You can, uh, you know, hear all the recent shows that JV's been doing and even go back and uh, listen to some of the programs that I've done in past months That's at the website. You can also participate in our chat room. And to do that, just go to YouTube, type in JV Johnson. That's a great way to uh, really be an active member of the show during the course of the program. You'll get to make some, uh, meet some nice people, make some uh, funny, uh, cutting remarks about the host, if you'd like as well. Again, the chat room, JV Johnson on YouTube. You can follow us on Facebook. That's at Beyond Reality Radio. Also follow us on Snapchat and Instagram. And a little bit later on, we will take your calls at our toll-free listener line. And that is 844-687-7669. Again, that's 844-687-7669. And we'll take some calls for our guests coming up in our number two. Um, In addition, you can uh, follow me on Facebook as well. Um, I have a regular Facebook page, which may or may not be of interest, but probably of more interest is the page that I developed about a year ago. It's called Bruce Markison's Ghostly Gallery. Rather than try to spell out my last name, the best way to go to that page on Facebook is just type in at Ghostly Gallery. Take you right to it. We uh, do all sorts of stuff about horror, sci-fi, the paranormal, Uh, We do uh, stuff about horror movies, literature, sci-fi, comic books even. We get into a lot of different areas of conversation. In fact, today, I actually got into uh, a little bit about uh, old board games, and I'll talk about that uh, in a moment. But before we talk about uh, some of the old board games that I grew up with uh, related to the areas of horror and sci-fi, Let's uh, tell you about tonight's show a little more specifically. Tonight, we will be talking with Alex Matsuo. She is a paranormal researcher and thespian. Alex will be discussing her brand new book. It's called The Brave Mortal's Guide to Ghost Hunting. She'll also talk about the subject of haunted theaters. 
Alex has a website as well. It's www.alexmatsuo.com. So that'll be our main topic of conversation over the next two hours. In terms of upcoming guests, of course, tomorrow night, Thursday is Thanksgiving, so that'll be a best-of show. Friday, as usual, will be a best-of show, so we'll have highlights of past shows coming up over the next two nights. And then our next live program will be Monday. JV will be back by then. Uh, He'll be talking to Bill Bean, spiritual warrior and author, and he'll be discussing his new book, Dark Force Revisited, and share some of his recent exorcism cases. And I've long been fascinated with exorcisms, what actually goes on with them. Uh, That should be a very entertaining show coming up next Monday night. Now, I mentioned a moment ago at my uh, Ghostly Gallery page on Facebook, kind of a theme I've been following this week, um, this being Thanksgiving, and you know, it's a time to think about getting together with family. It's a time to think sort of nostalgically and When I was growing up in the early 70s, I actually uh, had some board games related to the topics of horror and the supernatural. Uh, One of the games I played, I wrote about this earlier in the week, was a board game called Witch Witch, which was a a game that was really targeted for younger kids, ages 6 to 12, but it had absolutely the coolest board. It was a three-dimensional haunted house. And it actually was two levels. There was actually an attic in addition to four main rooms on the first floor. And I don't remember much about how to play the game, but I just, I love the board itself. And when we were done playing with the game, it uh, was such a cool looking board that I never wanted to take it apart. I just wanted to keep it intact and sort of display it almost like a museum showpiece. So that was one game that I played. Then there's another game, and I was looking this up on the internet today. Back in the early 60s, a board game was put out called Mystic Skull, a game of voodoo. Some of our listeners who go back to the 60s might remember that game. I actually didn't start playing board games until the early 70s, when I was about seven or eight years old. So Mystic Skull kind of came and went before I came around. But I saw the image of the uh, the box that it came in and the uh, artistry on the cover. Really cool-looking game. And then inside uh, the box, you had a skull, you had a cauldron, and you had a bone. And apparently you did something with the bone where, I don't know, you mixed it in the cauldron and that moved the skull. The skull would then rotate very slowly to one of the players. And I think you could have anywhere from two to four players And the object of the game, everybody had a miniature voodoo doll. And the object of the game was to actually uh, get pins placed in the voodoo dolls as if you were, you know, actually using a real voodoo doll. You wanted to fill up the other player's voodoo dolls before yours got filled up with pins. Now, this was kind of interesting. It's a voodoo game. It's got this, you know, really cool but kind of scary looking skull I imagine this caused some controversy back in the 1960s, and maybe this is why the game came and went so quickly. I can imagine a lot of parents out there were not happy with their 8, 9, 10-year-olds playing with this game, a game of voodoo, miniature voodoo dolls, putting pins in the player's dolls. This must have caused a panic in some neighborhoods. Now, again, by the time I started playing board games, 
this this game was pretty much off the shelves. I don't ever remember seeing it. You know, when I went to the local Woolworths or I went to actually we had a local store called Robert's Toy Town, which is really cool. I never remember seeing that game in any of the stores. But in the 1960s, this game did have a, a following. And I think if it had been around, if I'd been aware of it in the early 70s, I think my parents, in particular my mother, would not have been pleased, might not have approved of me having this game. But it's really cool looking. I've talked to people that actually had it played with it. They said it was a really good game and that the individual parts were really well made. It was well constructed. It was not a cheap type of thing. So uh, maybe some of you remember The Mystic Skull, a game of voodoo from the 1960s. All right, we will get started with our main topic of conversation. That is not voodoo, but it is rather ghost hunting. Our guest tonight is Alex Matsuo. She is a paranormal researcher and a thespian. She'll be talking about uh, her new book, The Brave Mortal's Guide to Ghost Hunting. This is actually her fourth book. Um, We'll tell you more about Alex and her pursuits as an actress and as a paranormal researcher. We'll do that after our first break. Hey, gang, it's JV here. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Some of you are new to the program, and some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback and even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing, and as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you, right now, to go to our YouTube channel and subscribe. Once on YouTube, just search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it there. Subscribe. It's all free, and it'll make you part of our global community. In addition, Beyond Reality Radio is available as a podcast. Go to your favorite podcast platform and search for Beyond Reality Radio and subscribe there as well. And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you, no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. We are back. This is Beyond Reality Radio, a late-night Wednesday. JV has the night off. My name, Bruce Marcuson. Glad to have a chance to fill in over the next couple of hours. And we are going to be talking about the subjects of paranormal research, ghost hunting, and more specifically, the idea of... um, Hunting Ghosts in Theaters, something that has fascinated me for a while. Our guest tonight is paranormal researcher and thespian Alex Matsuo. Alex is the founder and director of the Association of Paranormal Study. Uh, She holds a master's degree in theater arts from San Diego State University and also works full-time as a writer and IT professional. Since 2002, Alex has been kind of constantly working in the pursuit of knowledge in the area of paranormal study. She actively participates in the paranormal community while also corresponding with fellow investigators around the world. Uh, Back in 2014, that is when Alex published her first book called The Haunted Actor, and that's about the relationship between theater and the supernatural. 
Her latest book coming out very shortly, The Brave Mortal's Guide to Ghost Hunting. We'll be talking uh, much more about that book and some other subjects as well. Uh, we welcome to Beyond Reality Radio, Alex Matsua. Alex, thank you for joining us. How are you tonight? I'm doing great, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Pre-Thanksgiving program, getting ready for a few of the in-laws to come over to the house. Uh, that's always an interesting uh, conversation in and of itself. But I think mm-hmm. more interesting will be our conversation tonight um, as we get into um, uh, some of these areas um, that that you kind of specialize in, specifically the idea of uh, hunting ghosts in theaters. And I want to talk to about that a little bit later on in the program. But let's... Um, Let's talk about your background. How did you become interested uh, in this particular subject? Um, Was this something that began in college, after college? Where exactly did the whole idea of paranormal research kind of begin to fascinate you? Let's see. So I had experiences when I was a kid. And, of course, my mother was not really a big fan of that so basically anything paranormal anything spooky or scary was banned from the house and we know today that if you tell a kid no when it comes to something they're going to try <laughs> to learn and try to do what they're not supposed to do and that's exactly what happened with me so i found myself you know checking out books in the library on the paranormal and leaving them hidden somewhere like in my desk at school um, or <laughs> even outside of my house. So that's technically I wasn't bringing things inside. Uh, so and from there, the more my mom resisted me getting into the paranormal, the I wanted more. So when I finally was old enough to have my driver's license and I started driving, that's when I actually started um, going out and ghost hunting on my own. So you're kind of the rebellious sort, which uh, I guess a lot of us are like that as 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 children and as teenagers. In terms of the area of specific ghost hunting, when did that begin? Why did that begin? Uh, it started when I was about sixteen or seventeen. Um, I now looking back at it, I realized how dangerous it was. But you know, back in the days of Yahoo groups and Yahoo chat rooms, I and message boards and such, I started corresponding with other people who were interested in the paranormal, and I managed to find a few people who were also interested in the same thing. So uh, between them and some of my friends from school, we would actually go out to the local cemetery, and I grew up in San Diego, so we had a few haunted spots there, and so we would start mainly ghost hunting around Old Town San Diego, which is where the infamous Whaley House is located. Mm. So we would do that about once or twice a month, and that's kind of where I got my feet wet in that whole world. So was it helpful to you to have a group of friends interested in the subject matter so you didn't have to do this by yourself? Oh, definitely. One, it made me feel like, you know, I wasn't quite so alone in this, um, given that I had experiences when I was a kid and, you know, the way that my family reacted when... I had these experiences. It made me feel very uh, vulnerable and alone, Uh, Mm. and I didn't know if there was anyone else out there that really had the experiences like I did, and so meeting up with other people who had similar interests because of personal experience was really helpful. Yeah. As a teenager, did you have any equipment at all? 
No, actually. Uh, I mean, I had a pen and paper. I had a, I had a cassette recorder. Okay. Um, when I was doing musical theater, you know, we would have our cassette recorders to record our rehearsals and music and stuff, but I also had a whole set of cassette tapes dedicated to just ghost hunting. Now, I don't know what the heck I was doing back then, <laughs> but um, I've actually been trying to revisit that chapter of my life because I found the tape recorder after um, my mom passed. I actually found it in a bunch of boxes in her house. So I don't think she knew they were there because yeah. she did. I don't think she would have kept them. But that's, so that's been, a, that's been a treat to listen to those listen to those quote-unquote investigations again. And the recorder still works all these years later? It does, yeah. yeah. Uh, I took very good care of it. Um, it was wrapped in plastic, and so I think that might have delayed the wear and tear of it. Uh, just had to put it a fresh set of batteries in. Yeah. Now that you're older, do you have the ability to ha- use more high-tech equipment, or do you still you know, kind of use the basics, tape recorder and your own observations? been able to upgrade my equipment uh, quite a bit, so I've gone digital. Uh, so I use digital audio recorders, uh, you know, like mainly like Olympus brand because I like that. Mm-hmm. Depending on the location, I may bring my Rode microphone, which it's only for select locations because it's a $700 microphone. Um, I also have a hat that has uh, four microphones on it and it's extremely sensitive. Like I can hear things happening down the street. <laughs> it's, wow. it's that sensitive. Yeah. You said it's and a hat. It's a hat. It's just a ball cap and it's rigged with four microphones. Wow. Yeah. Uh, a fellow by the name of John Missy actually made it for me. Um, he's based up in Canada. Uh, he made it for me and sent it down. Yeah. What's your advice to someone who is just getting interested in this field, wants to be a, an amateur ghost hunter, if you will. Uh, what would you say to someone uh, in terms of how to get started, what to do, what's the best approach? I would definitely say uh, hit, hit up Google and see if there's any local uh, meetups or teams around your area and see if you can connect with them. You know, a lot, most of the time, uh, paranormal teams are open to um, having someone sort of shadow them or um, if they have some sort of meetup, you know, attend a meetup, you know, definitely get connected with people who uh, who have a lot of experience in the field. Uh, for me, I started hitting the books from day one. So uh, that's the other thing I would tell people is, you know, do, do, some, do some browsing on Amazon, uh, see what sort of books and resources are out there for, you know, if you're just getting into ghost hunting. Uh, definitely um, connecting with some sort of paranormal community, whether it's local or online, I think is key because there's, you know, at least from my, from my experience and the experience that I've given others, you know, there where I'm very open to new people who are just getting into ghost hunting and need some guidance. Yeah. And actually that's what motivated me to, uh, to write the book as well. Now, when you started, you had not written any of your books and I believe you have four now and the new one coming mm-hmm. out. So was there one book or, or two books that you really relied on when you got started? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, back when I was, getting into this in the early 2000s, uh, really the only resources I had were 
uh, that I really dove into were books written by Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, that that was a big one, especially the demonologist and um, other books like that. Because really, that that was really all there was. Um, and I later did find a few other books, like with Harry Price and um, S, um, SPR and ASPR. Uh, once I got more into high school and I got more uh, knowledgeable in that in that area in terms of research, um, anytime I could find anything in, in the library, I just looked up ghosts in the catalog cards, and I just and I went straight there. And at the at the time, Ed Lorraine Warren really did fill up the shelves. And then, you know, there's those select books that from the other authors I mentioned. Yeah. So try to connect with maybe an existing team, read what you can, read your book. We're going to talk more about that as we continue. Mm-hmm. Any other pieces of advice for somebody just starting out in this? Uh, don't copy what you see on TV. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Uh, so in TV, majority of TV shows, uh, these investigators are there for you know, more than 30 to 45 minutes that you see on TV. Um, last year, I was on Travel Channel's Most Terrifying Places in America, and I had maybe a 15-minute segment, and we were there for about uh, 8 to 10 hours. Yeah. And uh, so that's just, I mean, and then this is something I've always known, but uh, people tend to, to take what they see on TV and think that that's how ghost hunting is when it's a completely different experience to what you see on TV. What the TV shows represent are like the best of, <laughs> like, you know, the best uh, 30 to 45 minutes of that investigation. So definitely don't copy what you see on TV, uh, especially when it comes to provoking, uh, especially when most of the time it's not necessary. Mm. So be patient, be prepared to put a lot of hours in. You're not going to necessarily come up with an experience within a few minutes, unless you're really lucky. Right, exactly. Um, I guess the patience would be the hardest part for me. As much as I'm interested in ghosts, and I and I, I find a lot of these shows entertaining, and certainly talking to you about it, I find this entertaining. I don't know that I would have the patience to, you know, to put in all those hours. But that's something I guess you you have to develop. That it, it may not be there right away. You you I guess you're anxious. You want something to happen. But after a while, you realize it doesn't quite work that way. Uh, you know, and I actually I agree with you on that. Uh, we have evolved as a society into uh, people that want that instant gratification. Uh, we want that quick uh, result these days. And in ghost hunting, that's just not what it is. And I, I find that actually oddly calming as well because... You have to you have to slow down. You have to sit, and you really have to listen, mm. and you really have to pay attention to your surroundings. And sometimes that can take a little bit uh, to adjust. And I definitely recommend starting small. I mean, if you dive into a twelve-hour investigation right away, awesome, <laughs> awesome. Just be prepared. You might be sitting for uh, long increments of time while you wait for things to happen. Let's talk more about your approach to ghost hunting. You already mentioned that you don't like provoking the ghosts, uh, taunting them. You don't, that's not something that you really want to do. What is your approach more specifically when you go out 
on a typical ghost hunt, what do you do? So we use the approach of ghost hunting with um, humanity or ghost hunting with empathy, meaning that we're not going in and asking questions like, you know, who are you? Do you know that you're dead? Um, Why are you here? Give us a sign of your presence. Uh, We don't really go with that approach. Uh, When we can, we will actually uh, use trigger objects, uh, which I know a lot of groups do these days. Uh, We'll actually go as far as we will dress up appropriate to the time period of of the time period that's significant to that location. Uh, for example, we went to the USS North Carolina in Wilmington, and we actually dressed up in 1940s-style clothing. So the women were wearing, you know, wearing period dresses. Uh, we did have one uh, dressed up as Rosie the Riveter type of, uh, type of person. Uh, we didn't really have the men dressed up because uh, they weren't really into that, but it's still... Uh, it still didn't diminish the experience. Uh, we also brought photos of pinup models. We brought cigarettes. Uh, we also brought um, a little bit of whiskey, um, since that seems to be a good trigger ob- object for that particular location. Uh, we also had one of our team members bring photos from uh, Pearl Harbor as well as a trigger object to see if we can get the ghosts to start talking about the war. What was really interesting was that that actually they didn't want to talk about the war. <laughs> and maybe it's because we had women there dressed up in period clothing, but they were more interested in talking with us. So uh, we actually had a skirt flipped up a few times. Uh, we had a, some really active, active interactions when we were on the USS North Carolina. So this sounds like it ties in directly to your interest in theater and the theatrical arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, a little, it's a little convenient, as I like to say. Yeah. Uh, so, and it does take a level of performance from us, the ghost hunters, because we have to we have to get into the world and we have to get into that mindset. So, which means we're flirting. We were flirting with the ghosts, and sometimes that meant we were kind of flirting into like a void <laughs> in the dark, you know, because mm. we don't we didn't know what to expect. So, but we were asking things like, oh, who wants to take us out tonight? Um, when we went into the officer quarters, we kind of we kind of uh, got a little, not, I don't want to say antagonistic, but we were like, oh, we were just talking to the enlisted folks. And, you know, that ended up getting some noises down from the enlisted area of the USS North Carolina. And then as we were walking around, you know, we invited the officers to, uh, you know, if we could, we asked them if we could take their arm and they can escort us around the ship. Um, and that actually turned into, uh, turned into quite, quite the, quite the active night. Yeah. It's obvious you do a lot of research and maybe that's the underrated or understated aspect of ghost hunting. You go in prepared. You do a lot of research before the actual ghost hunt itself. And maybe that's some something that the young ghost hunter doesn't realize going into this. I agree. Uh, there are a few people, well, more than a few, a few groups uh, that will not do research before they go in because they don't want to taint themselves for in terms of experiences. And that's completely different from doing historical research. Um, I find that I want to be able to continue that conversation if somebody 
a ghost does respond. I want to be able to continue talking about the events that surrounded that location and why that was important to the ghost. Uh, because I want to go further than just saying, do you know you're dead? What's your name? Yeah. I want to actually have that conversation. And then if any sort of responses that I get, I can go back and cross-reference that with the research. You think a ghost, a spirit, is more likely to respond to you knowing that you're prepared, knowing that you've done your background research? I think so. I think also, and this goes back to the whole ghost hunting with empathy and ghost hunting, you know, with humanity. Uh, they also want to hear your story, meaning it's okay to talk about you a little bit. Uh you know, we all shared our own personal experiences with World War II when we were on the USS North Carolina and how that impacted us. Because even, like, several generations down the line, we're still affected by those events. Uh, my grandfather was a Japanese-American soldier that served in the Army mm. during World War II. And I find that is a very um, – it's, it's a very – I don't want to say triggering, but more of a – it's a catalyst because – so far, every World War II era ship that I've been on, and I've brought that up, that's always that's always triggered some sort of response. You talk about these responses. Are these responses verbally, words that you can understand? Are they simply sounds? Are they visual? What, what kinds of responses do you typically get? So, interestingly enough, um, when we were on the USS Hornet in Alameda, California, uh, we actually, the ghost manifested in front of us in wow. the form of, and I hate to use this word, but I can only describe them as orbs. And I'm not a believer in traditional orbs that you see in photography or video, because I, I do believe it's all dust, because I am a photographer myself. But what I saw on the USS Hornet, I was looking straight at it, and these little green balls of light emitted their own light. And they they didn't move in any sort of particular pattern. And even when we turned the light on, we were walking around to see if we could find a light source because we were really trying to debunk this because it was so incredible. We flipped the lights back off, and after about 10 to 20 minutes, you know, we started talking again and, you know, talking about the same topic that brought about these little, you know, balls of light. And they actually came back for a few more minutes. For those maybe not aware, orbs are small lights, uh, can be different shapes. Sometimes they're just circles. Sometimes they can take on a more defined shape. They'll often show up in photographs or on uh, film and video. Uh, I've talked to people that are experts on paranormal, um, uh, the paranormal, other folks, um, some are big believers in orbs. Sounds like you're not. You're part of that group that's not a big believer. But obviously you felt that what you saw, this was not just a, a plain old orb. This was something a little extra. Yes. And there's actually, there is a definitive difference between the dust orbs that we often see in photos and video and an actual orb. And the orb meaning it admits its own light. Um a lot of times I'll be looking at photos that are purported to be paranormal and 
I usually have to be the bearer of bad news. And usually I can, if I can recreate the photo, if I can recreate the effects of that photo, then, yeah, I can definitely uh, rule out that it's dust, moisture, or bugs. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and I, like I said, the person that would send me the photo is usually not very happy about that, but they'll thank me for, for my time. Uh, but there has there has been a few photos that I've seen of orbs that I haven't been able to debunk, so uh, there was some hope in that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so but I'm all, I'm a big believer in you know we need to acknowledge that some of the paranormal photos that we see are just dust and. That's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that your grandmother's not coming to visit you. It just means that what was caught in this photo was just not paranormal. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, a typical ghost hunt can last for many hours, but then you have all the time when you come back with your, you know, your findings and your recordings. Mm-hmm. That's many more hours that are added on, correct? Oh, yes. Uh, this is actually something I talk about in the Brave Mortals guide to ghost hunting, if you have five audio recorders positioned in various areas um, around your location, and you're there for five hours, you know, five devices, five hours, that's 25 hours of evidence review you're going to have to do. Yeah. Same thing with video, you know, not even including video. So you have, let's say you have three cameras, that's 15 hours of evidence review you're going to have to do. and, of course, we timestamp everything, so we sync up all of our devices. Um, really, we just, we just do a clap so that, you know, we can all – we know to start at zero at the clap. And then we just make note of uh, timestamps if anything happens. Uh, sometimes that tends to speed up the process just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, other times I can – like when I'm looking at audio waves, I can actually see if there is something going on in the audio waves. Because uh, I've been doing this for so long now, yeah, and that helps, and that helps too. But it also helps to have a team, and I can split. We can split all of that work up, so we're only doing maybe like three or four hours of evidence review. Alex, we have just a couple of minutes before the top of the hour, but I wanted to talk just briefly about some of the, your other areas of interest besides ghosts and ghost hunting. Uh, you're mm-hmm. an you're an actor and you're a singer. What kinds of acting do you do? What what kinds of music are you into? Uh, let's see. In terms of acting, mainly I'm doing musical theater, so which includes singing. Uh, let's see. It's been years, but I used to be really active doing the Shakespeare thing, too, um, especially when I was in graduate school and getting my master's in theater. So um, I still love Shakespeare. Shakespeare will always be my first love. Um, there's just not a lot of Shakespeare around where I live right now, so that's got a lot to do with it. Um, when I was living in San Diego, there was always some sort of opportunity to participate in some sort of Shakespeare production. Mm. Um, so in terms of singing, um, right now, I, I actually, on my YouTube channel, I do singing covers. Um, it varies between musical theater and modern music. Uh, so I, I did a cover of Adele's All I Ask that was posted mm. about a month or so ago. Okay. Uh, so, and I'm actually working on a musical theater cover right now. Yeah. So. Did you have a singing hero growing up, someone you really liked? Ooh, let's see. This is really going to reveal me as growing up in a conservative Christian household, but I grew up with Amy Grant. <laughs> I was always singing Amy Grant. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
And I was singing Disney, um, and I actually do a lot of Disney songs, too. I actually did a female version of Out There from Hunchback of Notre Dame uh, several months ago that a lot of people really enjoyed. So, um, yeah, I guess I can add Disney to my list of singing as well. Um, Alex, as we continue on this subject, uh, I'm really interested in this whole idea of of theaters being haunted. Mm -hmm. And you've done two books in that area. In fact, your first book was called The Haunted Actor. And then later you did The Haunting of the 10th Avenue Theater. Why is it that theaters seem to attract ghosts? That's uh, that's a theme we often see portrayed in movies and often in real life, too. Why is that? Ooh, so theaters are a hub of energy. So not just uh, like mechanical energy, but also human energy as well. So you have, in theaters, you have the lights, you have the sound, you have radio frequencies, you have um, a lot of mechanical energy happening, and then you also have the human energy. So you have the energy coming from the actors, and I can speak from experience, creating a character and, you know, becoming that character and performing that character takes an extraordinarily a large amount of energy, and then you have the energy coming in from the audience. So there's also that exchange of energy where the actors are performing and then the audience is, you know, giving their energy back. So between that, you have the biological and you have the technological energy that's happening. Yeah. There's also something about just the construction of the theater that it kind of makes it ideal for the portrayal of these kind of stories in film and in television, you have high ceilings, the rafters, you have that mysterious mm-hmm. backstage area. It all just seems to be a perfect fit. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And some of our most famous ghost stories come from theaters, you know, like The Woman in White. Uh, there's a ghost story for that. You know, usually it's an ingenue or um, the prima ballerina that was killed by the understudy the night before opening night. Um, you have the stage hand that took the wrong step and fell to his doom. Um, there's so many um, ghost stories associated with theaters that are often romanticized, and as you mentioned, uh, they are fictionalized into movies. Yeah. Tell us about this 10th Avenue Theater. Uh, Where is it, and was this a place that you acted in? Uh, So the 10th Avenue Theater is a small um, theater in San Diego, California, where I'm from. And, oops, sorry, got a kitty, kitty, uh, you know, (laughs) crawling on me, going, meow. Anyway. Uh, my daughter, my daughter just <laughs> added a uh, a cat to our house, so I'm learning all about cats. Uh, by the way, Tenth um, Avenue Theater. It's in in San Diego, right in the city. Yep, right in the heart of downtown, uh, right next to the infamous gas lamp quarter. And uh, so, it actually started its life out as a church. And uh, there's four stories to this building. It was attached to the Baptist church that was next door. And uh, for years, it it worked as a 24-hour chapel. Um, as most people know, and if you don't, now you know, San Diego is a huge military hub. It's been a military hub for, like, over a century. And basically, that building was built because a donor wanted sailors to have a place to pray when they came back from, you know, from leave. So 
anyway, during the the 40s, 50s, and 60s, it also served as um, the church's office, their youth, uh, their youth uh, program. Um, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts had their meeting there. So uh, it wasn't until the late 90s, early 2000s, when um, the church decided to not use that building anymore. So it was just kind of sitting abandoned. And this gentleman by the name of Jeff Coda bought the building. And he, he made sure to tell me he bought it for a really good price. And I always find that funny because most ghost stories start off with buying a place for a really good price. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and he, he was told by some of the church members about these ghost stories or about these ghosts that supposedly resided in the building. Um, Jeff first rented out the building, or at least the offices, to local businesses uh, while he was trying to convert it into a theater. And it didn't take very long before his tenants were talking about, hey, you know, there's this little girl that keeps running up and down the hallways, you know, can you talk to whoever this kid belongs to and get her to stop, when there was no physical living little girl <laughs> hanging out in the offices. Um, there was a little girl by the name of Missy that uh, fell down the stairs in the 60s who passed away, and she's actually quite snarky, and she's uh, um, these days we would describe her as a strong, independent woman. Um, but she, she likes to tease uh, the investigators that go around to the 10th Avenue Theater. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so Jeff started to learn, hear about these stories from the tenants, and realized, oh, maybe there's some truth to these. Uh, it wasn't until 2011, I was performing at the 10th Avenue Theater, and I did some other work there. I had my own paranormal experiences. I had just started my team, and then I asked uh, Jeff, I'm like, hey, could we investigate the theater sometime? And he gave me the key, and he said, hey, you know, just make sure you're not there during a show and um, make sure everyone's gone when you go in and have fun. So I had unlimited access to this theater for about two years from ghost hunting uh, wow. perspective. Anything really strange happen? Ooh, quite a few things, quite a few things. Um, so uh, my very first experience there, this was before, well, I had the team started, but this was before I had made this incredible deal with Jeff. And I was actually hosting a staged reading of my play there. And the way the theater works, the, the light booth and the sound booth is on the second floor and the theater's on the first floor. And my booth person was not going to make it to the show on time to turn down the lights for the stage reading. And so I was going to have to run from doing my curtain speech where I introduced the play, run up the stairs and turn the lights down, which probably would have taken me about one minute, one to two minutes if, you know, if things went well, though running in heels was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, after I did my curtain speech, I ran up the stairs, got the key out to unlock the door to the sound and the light booth. I get inside. I look at the stage. Somebody already turned the lights down. I was the only one with a key. So that was my first, huh, okay. Yeah. That's weird. And I know the lights weren't turned down beforehand because I was just on the stage. Right. So that, that was weird, but the ghost helped me out. Thanks, ghost. <laughs> uh, and then during the show, I was on the side watching, and there was curtains on the walls. 
I kept feeling little fingers touching my shoulders during the show. And to the point I had to step away from the curtain because I was getting weirded out and I was getting freaked out. So that was really what got me into really wanting to investigate the theater. And then, of course, Jeff gave me so much access to the space. I mean, it was a dream come true. Yeah. So no doubt that this theater is haunted. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. This place is haunted by several ghosts, and I think it's because the 10th Avenue Theater is such a positive place. Um, and there are people there who will listen to them as well. So I think that's why they they stick around. Yeah. And they still have regular performances there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a very active space. It's always being rented out. The 10th Avenue Theater also gave local theaters a tremendous opportunity to do and create art um, for, a, for a fairly low cost compared to the other spaces in the city. Yeah. We continue with our guest uh, tonight on Beyond Reality Radio, Alex Matsuo. Uh, we'll take your calls for Alex as well, toll-free. Our number is 844-687-7669. Again, that's 844-687-7669. And we do have a caller on the line joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina, is Steve. Steve, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. You're on with Alex Matsuo. Well, thank you for taking my call, and a great show. I'm a big fan of uh, Beyond Reality, and got a great guest there, uh, Alex. And uh, Alex, I'm a paranormal investigator, been into it uh, off and on since 2006. And uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, if I may, have you ever been followed home from an investigation? I mean, you've been out to all these haunted places. Is anything ever followed you home? That's a great question. That is an excellent question. And my answer to that is yes, it has happened quite a few times. Uh, once I started really establishing my boundaries before I left the location, it has reduced quite significantly. But in my early days, oh, yeah, it happened a lot. How did you well, feel great. about that? Did, that? did that upset you? Did you find that disturbing or you were fine with it? Uh, it depended on the haunting. Uh, if it was a place like the 10th Avenue Theater where Misty followed me home, that was the girl I talked about earlier, Yeah, I was okay with it as long as she didn't create too much chaos in my house, uh, which occasionally she did, and I had to you know, take measures to be like, okay, you need to go. <laughs> I'll see you next time. <laughs> Please leave. Uh, other times, I mean, I'm okay with it as long as they – as long, like I mentioned with Missy, as long as they don't create too much of a ruckus, sometimes I think they're just curious about who we are and what we do, where we live, what our other life is like beyond ghost hunting. Um, other times there are negative attachments, I think, that want to take advantage of our energy and our mindset and corrupt it. Um, yeah. That happened to me when I was 18 years old. And that was mildly, not mildly terrifying. It was terrifying. This 18-year-old girl didn't sleep in her own room for six months. She slept with mommy. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how intense it was. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but like I said, since I started establishing stronger boundaries before I left the location, um, it has reduced by a lot. Steve, did you have a follow-up? Uh, yes, uh... I want to first congratulate her on her new book coming out, and I'm sure I'll read that. But uh, I want to ask her, too, what does she think of electronic voice phenomena, 
And has she ever uh, tried to record electronic voice phenomena in her own home? Uh, so I'll answer the first part of that question first. Uh, I think electronic voice phenomenon is very interesting uh, because we don't hear it really with our naked ears, but our electronics pick it up. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out why that is uh, because, for me, I always want to know why. Yeah. So I've caught quite a few EVPs that I can't explain, and I've tried to explain it. Um, I actually have a few on my team's YouTube channel. Um, if you all look up Association of Paranormal Study, you'll, um, you'll see those videos. And let's see. And the second part of that question, have I tried to do it in my own home? I actually have, uh, only a few times. Uh, I try not to do it too often because I do get a little concerned. I might be opening myself up to maybe other things coming around. Yeah. But I think also, but I also think since my mom passed, that has reduced quite significantly because I'm pretty sure she's, she's playing the gatekeeper to my home. Sure. Um, Steve, yeah, thank you. I, uh, thank you for the call, Steve. We do appreciate it. We have uh, John from the state of Florida. John, you're on Beyond Reality Radio with Alex Matsuo. Yeah, I got since you're a um, NT theater and stuff, I've always wondered about how come they, whenever they talk about Macbeth, it's not Macbeth, it's the Scottish play. And you yes. have like, have to go outside, do all the rituals to you debug yourself mm -hmm. of the bad luck. Why is mm -hmm. that? So it is believed that the words that Shakespeare used for the three witches in Macbeth were actually uh, actual spells. Um, hmm. and, and during Shakespeare's time, you know, James I had come out with his book, Demonology. Uh, the witch trials and witch hunts of England were very much um, a significant part of Britain's history. So it's believed that that Shakespeare used actual spells from that, and that's what and that's what causes the the curse. Um, I <laughs> I've actually experienced Macbeth's curse quite a few times. Every time I do Macbeth, I don't know if it's because of Shakespeare's words, or is it because of that belief that we've had instilled into us for literally centuries. It's almost like maybe could we have created our own curse with that? Um, I've had some really weird things happen uh, when I was doing these plays uh, or doing Macbeth, and or if Macbeth was ever muttered um, in the theater and things have happened. So, like I said, I don't know if it's because of the words in the script or is it because our belief in this has given this power. Very interesting. Thank you, John. I had not uh, not heard of that before. The actual words. For Macbeth could uh, cause a little bit of a problem. Interesting. Uh, Alex, by the way, has a website that we encourage you to visit. Uh, go to alexmatsuo.com, and that's spelled A-L-E-X-M-A-T-S-U-O.com. Again, A-L-E-X-M-A-T-S-U-O.com, alexmatsuo.com. Uh, find out more about Alex, uh, her involvements in uh, acting, singing, of course, ghost hunting, and writing books, and her newest book uh, is actually out on Amazon already, uh, The Brave Mortal's Guide to Ghost Hunting. It's available in paperback, uh, but the official online launch party will be coming up for Alex on Facebook this weekend. 
Uh, that's Saturday, November 30th, starting at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure to uh, check that out. Facebook official launch party for the Brave Mortals Guide to Ghost Hunting. Alex, I'm always curious about titles, and I know a lot of times the author doesn't get to title their books, but in this case, you're going, um, this is a, a book that you've published yourself, so I'm assuming you chose the title. Why the Brave Mortals Guide to Ghost Hunting? Why that title? So, uh, unsurprisingly, I have a flair for the dramatics, <laughs> and <laughs> and I really enjoy uh, fiction as well, and I... I wanted the book to feel like the person was getting ready to go on an adventure, which the paranormal is an adventure for me. I always meet new people. I get to explore new locations, and I get to learn so many new things. While going through a roller coaster of emotions from fear to excitement to boredom, so it's it's definitely uh, a crazy world that I've fallen in love with. So with that title... Uh, I like I said I wanted the I wanted the reader to feel like they're getting ready to embark on an adventure, and I was really inspired by other titles like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, that sort of thing. Because I wanted this to be a book that wasn't like the other books about how to ghost hunt. I yeah. wanted this to really feel like something special. So, and this and this is this is my passion project. Yeah. How do you break the book down? Um, what are the chapters like? Uh, so the chapters uh, break down into everything from just talking about why do we call it ghost hunting, because <laughs> uh, that's that's a topic of debate all the time, at least in my world it is. Uh, I also go into the history of ghost hunting, so I think if you're going to go into this, you should know where we came from. And I also talk about how to ask questions, uh, so how to ghost hunt with humanity, how to ghost hunt with empathy. I do have a whole chapter of provocation, uh, like why you shouldn't do it, the different levels of provocation. Uh, I also talk about tech. Uh, I talk about apps, uh, 21st century gadgets. And I also talk about what to do after the ghost hunt. And I also really go into how to do historical research. Uh, this is something that I really found lacking in a lot of um, in a lot of resources for ghost hunters today. You know, how do you do that historical research? But not only that, how do you read these historical documents? What kind of documents should you be looking for to get certain information that you need? And I also introduce using genealogy in your research for paranormal investigations. Yeah. You mentioned the history of ghost hunting. When did ghost hunting actually begin? Can we trace it back to a very specific time? We can trace ghost hunting back to the ancient Greeks. So it goes back that far, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the earliest accounts comes from Pliny the Younger, and this is actually a story that's mentioned in the book, uh, but I'll tell it for your lovely listeners tonight. Uh, so there was a man by the name of Athenodorus who was looking for a place to live, and Athenodorus was an actual person. Um, you can actually, his, his name was Athenodorus Canidus. Uh, he was um, a Stoic philosopher that lived between 74 BC and 7 AD, and I and I found this story about 10 years ago. Uh, he was looking for a house in Athens, and he did find a house, but it was really cheap. Like 
abnormally cheap. <laughs> this references back to when, you know, Jeff bought the theater for mm-hmm. a great price. <laughs> Athena Doris um, found this house that was really cheap for its size, and it turns out the reason was is because the person who owned the house was renting it out, and he could never keep tenants because there was always the rattling of chains and this ghostly specter that would appear every night. So... I feel like I could have been a Doris in the past life because he's like, okay, I'm going to buy this house. <laughs> and he buys the house, and he's ready to meet this ghost. He's staying up all night. He's working on his writing. Um, several hours go by. This actually made me laugh. Several hours go by, and nothing happens. <laughs> uh, so it reminds me of our ghost hunts today. And eventually, though, uh, the ghost did come to him. He, he heard the chains, and... The ghost was clearly trying to get his attention, but uh, but Athena Doris did not respond. The ghost gets closer and keeps rattling the chains to the point where the chains are being rattled, apparently, in Athena Doris's face, and the ghost beckoned Athena Doris to follow him. Athena Doris follows the ghost. The ghost goes outside into the courtyard and disappears. And what Athena Doris did was he marked the spot where the ghost disappeared, he alerted the court magistrates the next day, and they ended up digging up that spot, and they found a skeleton that was bound with chains. Mm. And Athena Doris never saw that ghost again. So he got an amazing house for a great price uh, because of a ghost, but he was able to resolve that haunting. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what's happened with ghost hunting over really just the last 20 years. Um in terms of television, you know, the, the Ghost Hunters really started it on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you had Paranormal State, Ghost Adventures. Um, now we have the second incarnation of the Ghost Hunters. Uh, uh, Jason Hawes, who um, sometimes does this show with JV, has um, a new show this year, Ghost Nation. So we've seen a, an incredible uh, resurgence. I actually do, I do ghost tours in Cooperstown, where we're located. Mm-hmm. Um, and ghost tours have become very popular, just like ghost hunting has become really popular. What do you think the future holds for ghost hunting, whether it's through the media, television, or maybe something done more locally the way that you're doing it? Uh, do you see this continuing or do you see people losing interest? What do you think is going to happen? So I actually go into this in my book as well. Uh, so right now, as you said, we are in a resurgence of ghost hunting. I find that it comes in waves. So right now we have several shows on the air right now. And for me, I do appreciate what the shows do because it does make the paranormal a little bit more, I hate to use this term, it makes the paranormal a little more normal, uh, where people want to start exploring more. It's that catalyst to uh, get more interested into the subject or whether they want to join a team or start their own team. So, like I said, right now, we're at a high. It is going to taper off, I think, in a, in a, in a couple years. Uh, I think we have a couple more years left before this current um, this current high uh, sort of dies down a bit. And then we'll have a few more years of quiet where, you know, a show may pop up, but then it gets canceled. Um, but then it's going to come back. It's going to come back. There's going to be another resurgence. So it's, it's going to come in waves. I think because this is such a uh, – it, it's such a 
important part of our society uh, from the way our culture has developed and evolved to, you know, even social media, especially with social media, mm-hmm. the interest in ghosts and the paranormal is always going to continue. Yeah. It just may, it just may come in waves. Right. Now that's in terms of media and television, but sounds to me like you're pretty passionate about this. You're going to keep this going at, in, in your area in San Diego. You're going to keep this going as, as long as you can, right? Yeah, um, I'm actually in Raleigh, North Carolina now, but oh, you are. Okay. Uh, the the mark that I left in San Diego is still going on. So um, it's definitely something I'm going to continue doing, whether ghost hunting is popular or it's not so popular. Yeah. Um, in in you said you moved to Raleigh. Um, do you find that that's uh, a hotbed for this kind of activity? You know, uh, yes. Because I've never have lived on the East Coast before. I moved here in 2013, and I find that we have a lot of activity out here. I mean, granted, I don't live in one of the more active, like, Civil War areas or Revolutionary War areas of the state, but I'm surrounded by those areas. And I'm really fascinated with, like, the hauntings in the public locations. And also, my team does residential work, and... We have a lot of cases, and um, an alarming amount of, a ca- of cases, actually. So it has always made me wonder, what is it about the South that makes it so haunted? So if, if somebody wants to contact you to do uh, a ghost hunt, what's the best way? Do they do it through your website, or is there a better way? Uh, yeah, they can contact us through parastudync.com. That's P-A-R-A. S-T-U-D-Y-N-C, like NorthCarolina.com. They can fill out a case submission form, and we'll look into it. Um, Even if you're out of state and you just need someone to talk to, you can definitely contact us because we also do consultations over the phone um, or over Skype. So we definitely want to try to help you out as much as we can. Uh, You can also connect with me on Facebook as well. Uh, Facebook is a big hub that we use uh, to communicate with our clients. Right. What about ghost hunters today in general? Are there things that they should be doing on an everyday basis to kind of stay on top of the work, to stay current? What do you think about that? I think we need, I think we definitely need to stop using a lot of techniques from the early 2000s, um, especially with the the line of questioning, because now we're at a point where a lot of these public, especially public locations that are getting ghost hunters coming in every night, mm-hmm. you know, we need to stop saying, give us a sign of your presence. Uh, do you know that you're dead? That, that question drives me crazy. Um, I think finding new ways and thinking outside of the box with, um, with how you communicate with ghosts, I think we need to start, uh, making it more, more like talking to a living person, because uh, ghosts are still people; they just exist in a different form. So I think talking to them, you know, like saying, "Hi, you know, how are you doing? My name is Alex, and I'm here to chat with you. I'd love to hear your story." Um, obviously, keeping it in contextual terms. If you want to go down that route that we do sometimes when we dress up. Um, but just thinking outside of the box when it comes to communication, just finding another way to engage the ghost. Yes, collecting the data or collecting the evidence is important, but I think also making that connection and humanizing the ghost will definitely create a more uh, fruitful conversation, in my opinion. All right, I have an out-of-the-box idea. We always see the ghost hunting taking place at night. 
How about doing a ghost hunt in the afternoon or in the daylight? Is 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 that oh. something that might be uh, worth it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. And my thing is, I think if a place is haunted, that's going to be haunted no matter what time of day. I know nighttime is popular too because it's quieter, and you know we don't have a lot of uh, you know air, um, noise pollution, you know, like from cars and people and stuff. Right. Uh, but if you're in a quiet area, I mean, I think definitely ghost hunting in the daytime. You can, I think, you can definitely do that and still get a response. Yeah. Are there any places or kinds of places that you will not investigate because you feel it might be disrespectful? Um, a hospital, a cemetery, or do you think it's fair game to go anywhere? Ooh, no, I think there's definitely rules. Um, uh, an active hospital, no. <laughs> That's definitely, I wouldn't do that. Uh, investigating, uh, like, a cemetery, especially right after someone's been laid to rest, um, no. I, I'm actually, I, I feel a little weird about investigating cemeteries anyway because, one, I don't think they're as haunted as we think they are. Mm. And, two, I mean, people are buried there. It's their final resting place. Uh, a lot of cemeteries, I mean, down in the South, we have a lot of historical cemeteries that aren't are not taking new internments, but um, I've seen people do, like, photo shoots in cemeteries, and there's, like, a freshly laid plot right right next to their feet, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it depends on the context, but investigating disaster sites or places where, like, a tragedy happened, like a recent tragedy, I would say in the last two decades, are, is pushing it a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I have heard of people going to investigate 9-11 sites, on the on on the request of a of a um, of a victim's family, which right. I think in that context, okay. Um, obviously, I wouldn't advertise it if I did that, uh, just because it is a sensitive thing, and I also don't want to give off the effect that this is a, that this is okay to do just because. Um, so I think anything where I think anywhere where there's a family that can still be affected. I, I think that I think that needs to be hands off unless the family con- contacts you and asks you to right. do this. Yeah. Something you mentioned during the first hour, you you talked about your Japanese ancestry, your heritage there, mm-hmm. and I, I watched uh, late summer, early fall, the show "The Terror" on AMC, which mm-hmm. was a ghost story relating to the internment camps of World War II. And ghosts coming from uh, from Asian uh, backgrounds. Just curious, did you watch the show? And any thoughts on it? I haven't watched the show. That's actually on my list. Uh, I definitely wanted wanted to check it out. Uh, so Japan has some really amazing lore when it comes to ghosts. I mean, they even have a ghost that cleans your bathroom. Um, <laughs> not in a broom and dustpan kind of way, but it eats your your eat your bathroom gunk. Uh, <laughs> so it's kind of gross. Uh, so Japan is extraordinarily spiritual. And even though my grandfather was born in Hawaii, his father came from Japan when they opened their borders. Uh, so those traditions and customs were very much a part of his upbringing. And I think it, I think it still survives today, but they did bring a lot of those traditions with them after they, you know, after, uh, you know, they came to America because um, my grandfather immigrated to America from Hawaii before Hawaii was a state. And 
I think I would not be surprised if some of those traditions still survived in the internment camps. I know in the internment camps they they really had to strip away any sort of uh, any any connection that they had with Imperial Japan, um, including like having the flag, clothes. Right. Um, they really had to assimilate, and that's and I truly believe that's a lot of the reason why. Um, a lot of these stories and memories are lost and um, because there's a lot about my grandfather's history that I still don't know about. Um, Like we, we're we're just now finding out all of the stuff thanks to, uh, you know, these libraries and, and other organizations uh, making all of their documents digital. And I've been able to find a lot of this stuff in my grandfather's history. So I think I think a lot of these stories are going to start coming out more. But I was really fascinated with the with the premise of the terror. So yeah. it's definitely on my list to watch. You know, the first few episodes are a little bit slow, and then it really picks up around the third or fourth episode and um, uh, kind of reaches a peak. I was a little disappointed by the finale, but the the middle episodes I thought were were quite well done, uh, very well acted. George Takei has a role, although it's a smaller role. But the lead actor, a uh, younger Asian-American actor, is terrific. I forget his name, but uh, he's really good uh, throughout the series. A final question for Alex Matsuo. Tell us about your online launch party coming up for the book. Yeah, so I have a launch party coming up for the Brave Mortals Guide to Ghost Hunting happening this Saturday. Now, the the launch party isn't just going to be all about me. It's going to last from 6 p.m. To, or 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. on Facebook. And I'm going to have a variety of guests coming in to talk about their own work. So basically, you know, giving them a platform to share what they're working on, about their books. Um, I have a lot of guests, including Robin Piabellamy, uh, Beth Darlington, uh, Maria Schmidt from World's Largest Ghost Hunt, uh, Tally Johnson, Bobby Gallo, um, Crystal Hope Reed, who's a psychic medium. So I got, a, I got, oh wow, I have a lot. One, two, three. I, I have almost like about 10, 10 guests coming to, um, to the launch party to help me celebrate. So, nice. and you'll get to meet a whole bunch of other people who are really awesome. That's coming up this Saturday, November 30th at 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. on Facebook. Alex, thank you very much. Best of luck with your new book coming out. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We appreciate it. We'll be back to wrap up tonight's show. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products. And all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alerted when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark. Because you deserve to save too. Become a Shark and save. A reminder that coming up the next two nights, we will have best of shows. So Thanksgiving night and then Friday night will be best of programs. Our next live show will be Monday. JV will be back. He'll talk to Bill Bean, spiritual warrior and author. And then Tuesday, his guest, Ken Hansen, a professor talking about the discovery of King David's Palace in underground Jerusalem. Uh, We thank you for joining us tonight on Beyond Reality Radio. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. 
Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.